Good morning, church. Today we're in Psalm 68, and I hope you'll get your Bible out and have it right out here in front of you, along with something to write on and a pen, because you're going to want to take some notes today. There's just some great stuff in this psalm. You just heard verses 1 through 10, and then the last four verses read in our scripture reading. And you might have noticed there's quite a few themes, even in just those verses. So today I'm going to focus on one theme, which is that God provides for the needs of people who are without. God is a provider of needs. And yet, all of these other themes are part of this song of praise. Consider just a few of the themes uh, that are going on in this psalm. The first couple of verses, one and two, you see God's enemies being scattered. And then in verse 3, the righteous people of God are joyful and they worship Him. And then verses 4 through 10, God is providing the needs of different people, the fatherless, the widows, the poor, and everybody actually gets blessed by God's rain that He sends on the earth as He causes the showers to fall. But there's more in this psalm. There are modern worship songs that we've lifted out of the psalm. In verse 1 and verse 20, we have some of the most important lines from the song, Let God Arise. In verse 1, it says, May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. Let God arise, his enemies will run for sure. This is where the idea for that Chris Tomlin song comes from, is right here. In fact, this verse 1 is also recorded in Numbers chapter 10. In a moment, I'm going to have you pause the video and go look this up. But when the Ark of the Covenant would set out from the camp of the people of Israel, Moses would sing this song, Let God arise, and may his enemies be scattered before him. And then he had another thing he would say when the Ark came back to rest, and the presence of God came to rest at the end of the evening, and the people set up camp and they stopped. So right now what I want you to do, actually, is to prepare to pause the video, and I want you to go read that Numbers 10 passage. It's right at the end of Numbers 10. And read what Moses said as the ark lifted up and settled down. And then look at verse 1 in our Psalm 68 and kind of compare them. And while you have the video paused, you might want to watch uh, on YouTube or listen to from one of your devices the worship song, Let God Arise. And if you want an alternative, here's another one. In uh, Psalm 68, verse 19, we read these words, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Now that's another modern praise song. The acapella group has made a great version of that. So here's a couple choices for you when you pause the video. You can go read Numbers 10 and see that connection, and you can watch one of these worship songs, listen to it. And close your eyes, soak it in, worship with God. Worship His presence for a minute. Let God arise. Uh, that God daily bears our burdens. Verse 20 of this psalm is part of let God arise. Our God is a God who saves. So pause the video right now, read the Numbers 10 verse, and then maybe listen to one of these songs, and then come right back, and I'll be here. Okay, welcome back. I hope that that was beneficial for you wanted to just move you into a place of worship through one of those songs, a place where you're thinking about God and His presence, because this psalm, first and foremost, is a song of worship. It's about a God uh, who provides for needs and who deserves to be praised. Let me read a few of the verses about God's provision, how He takes care of people. I'm starting in Psalm 68, verse 4. Sing to God, sing praise to His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds. 
His name is the Lord. Rejoice before him. He is a father to the fatherless. This is one of the ways. You might want to write this down under ways God provides. A father to the fatherless. This is a relationship, but it also is providing for the needs of livelihood. Because people who were orphaned might not have had a a sustainable source of income and a way to get bread and medicines and daily needs. So God somehow becomes father to the fatherless. Now I'm going to ask you to be thinking about how does God do that? How does God become father to the fatherless? How does God become defender of widows? That's also in verse 5. Uh, it says in verse 6, God sets the lonely in families. So now you've got three things for your list. Defends widows, father to the fatherless, and sets the lonely in families. Here's a fourth one. God leads forth prisoners with singing. Uh, so these are all, the, all these different ways that God provides for people who are in need. I'm going to ask you to think about it again. How does God do this? Okay, what, what is happening in both the spiritual and the physical realms that God is providing for people in these ways. Well, here's one of the ways in the physical realm that God provides for everybody. It's in verses 7 through 10. When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain. The psalmist poetically is talking about a thunderstorm that's shaking the ground, the rain coming down. It says, Before God, the one of Sinai, God, the God of Israel, you gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it. He's talking about the land of Canaan, the promised land. And from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. This little bit of poetry is talking about a real way that God provides for everyone in the physical world. God has set up the world so that through the water cycle, rains will come, cause crops to grow, vegetables and fruits and grains, and people can eat. And specifically, the Israelites are remembering and thinking about when they came into this bountiful land, milk and honey, this promised land full of food. And even though they hadn't done the planting and the harvesting, there was abundant food that God provided. Now that's a picture of something. It's a reminder that God's original intention towards humanity from the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve was to provide a lot, enough, more than enough, abundance for everybody. That, that's God's original plan, is to be a provider, to meet needs. And we are broken. We experience a world where we hoard, where, we, where we, uh, some people keep more than enough and other people don't have enough. We live in a world where famine comes, disease comes, where crops get destroyed by floods and by fires. We live in a world where there's viruses and workers in the factories that make different meats or foods for us may get sick and have to shut these factories down. I mean, we live in a broken world, a world that's struggling in many ways, yet God's intention is to bless and to provide. So there's another theme in this psalm. Besides that God provides, There is a theme of judgment, and it might be a mystery to us how these can even go together. So I want to to talk about it for a minute. The first couple of verses I've already read talk about God scattering his enemies. But if you read through this psalm front to back, verse 1 to verse 35, there are some other troubling parts. This song is about the procession of God's ark, the ark of the covenant, 
where the cherubim, these angels with their wings, are over this uh, gold-covered box that is the, the throne or the seat of God in his tabernacle tent. And so as the ark is going on this parade, the people are singing and worshiping, they're, they're dancing before God, they're, they're just praising him in every way. And they're praising him by retelling the stories of how Israel was delivered from Egypt and how they were brought into the promised land and how God has provided for them. So this is the context of this song. It's a story about how God provides, but part of the story is judgment. Part of the story is God scattering enemies. Part of the story talks about bloodshed, and it's not easy to read. It may be, for some of us, we think, how can that be how God treats people? Why would God allow judgment? Why would God even judge? And I want us to put on our critical thinking hats for a moment to realize that God cannot be a God of love and of blessing without being a God of judgment because of the problem of brokenness and evil that we were talking about just a minute ago. When we live in a world where some people hoard and other people go without, God has to judge. God has to say to those who are rich and not sharing that they'll be punished for treating the poor in that way. God has to say to a world full of famines and floods and diseases that are the kinds of brokenness that don't come from human sin directly, he still has to say, you, you need to be generous in this world and not be stingy in this world to help me meet needs. So this is another important way that God provides and he meets needs in the world is God judges. This is the way he defends those who would be oppressed, like widows or orphans, you know, the fatherless or the poor people or the prisoners, especially prisoners who are imprisoned unjustly and unfairly, but even prisoners who have been imprisoned for doing wrong, they're still humans that bear the image of God, however broken, that God loves and he wants to redeem and restore, and he wants to meet their needs too. Sometimes this is hard for us to remember that when God judges people for doing wrong, he's doing it in hopes that they will repent, come to him and have their needs met, their spiritual needs and their physical needs met. God isn't doing it so that they will be thrown away forever. While we're in this body with breath in our lungs and thoughts in our minds, God is hoping for everyone to repent and for people to be truly blessed by knowing him and participating in the kind of generosity that he set up for this world. So when God judges, it is because he wants to provide and meet needs. Think about how this happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes and begins to teach, and then the church is established, the passages about God's judgment that are the most fierce and fearsome often have to do with the people of God and the choice that we have to share or not to share. Think about Matthew chapter 25. In that chapter, Jesus gives this parable or teaching about sheep and goats. But the sheep and the goats aren't sheep and goats. They're people. They're generous people and stingy people. They're people who have done the will of God by visiting the imprisoned, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, giving medicine and care to the sick, or they haven't. And for the people that have done those things, Jesus calls them the sheep, the has them go to this side to eternal life. 
And to those who are not caring for the needs of others in the world, Jesus sends them to this side, to condemnation, to judgment. That's a really severe and hard teaching, just like some of the parts of Psalm 68 are hard teachings about judgment. And yet, the reason God does it is to make the point that in this world, we need to meet the needs of those who currently have needs. And it's for the people of God to help God meet those needs. So, as you're listing some things down on your paper today, here's several things we've covered. God meets needs uh, spiritually by being present with us, by being a father to the fatherless, by being close to us. He meets needs physically by sending rain in the world for everyone, and that goes for sunshine too, for the seasons of the year. He causes things to grow. He provides animals for food. He provides so many things for us, uh, trees and so on, that we can build shelters and houses out of. So God provides that way. God provides by judging. So by judging the people who are cruel and wicked and stingy and selfish, God is actually trying to release generosity and kindness and his good gifts to all of the world to try to teach us and, and shape us to be people who are like him and like his son Jesus. And then the last way is this. God uses the church, his faithful people throughout the world to meet the needs of others. Think about the book of James. James was Jesus' half-brother. So James was right in the middle uh, of this whole Jesus movement. He grew up in that house. He watched his brother. He learned from his brother. We know there was a time in his life he did not believe his brother was the Messiah, the Son of God. And later he does believe. He becomes convinced by the resurrection of his brother, Jesus. And James, who's a witness of all of this, who's the brother of Jesus, writes in James 1:27 that religion that God, our Father, accepts is both to care for widows and orphans in the world and to keep ourselves from being polluted by sin in the world. So in other words, religion that God wants is caring for the needs of others while we don't fall under his judgment by being polluted by the world. And one of the easiest ways to fall under the judgment of God is being stingy, selfish, and hoarding towards people who are in need, or just turning a blind eye, just being apathetic towards them, just pretending that there's not problems. We know right now in the time of this pandemic that just in our country, nearly 40 million people have declared uh, unemployment in these last nine to 10 weeks, almost 40 million. That is a lot of homes where people suddenly have less income, less medicine maybe, maybe less nourishing food, maybe less cleaning supplies, whatever they might need to buy with that income, there are some real needs out there. And so the church of God, according to James, is called to do something about just that. James goes on in chapter two to say, if anyone can look at a brother or sister who's in need of daily uh, clothes or food and say to them, well, go and be blessed, but they don't take care of their, their needs, they're, they're, this is just not the religion that God is asking for. This is not what he's looking for. That's worthless religion. What we need is faith along with action combined. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Even the demons believe in God. They know who he is and they tremble because they're not acting out of faith even though they have this head knowledge. We're not looking for people of God who have head knowledge about Jesus but no hands knowledge. We're looking for people who look like Jesus. They have a head knowledge. They believe Jesus is God's Son and they give generously like he gives, they share with others. They have hand knowledge and heart knowledge to share with others. Now here uh, is a really neat part of this psalm. I'm gonna have you pause the video one more time and then we're gonna wrap up and we'll be done today. 
but in Psalm 68, there is verse 18. I want you to look at it with me in your Bibles, and then I'm going to have you pause the video and, and go do something real quick. Let me read verse 18. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. Okay, let's explain this verse for a moment. When God ascended on high, this has to do with God's people going up to the promised land and going up to Jerusalem, to the place where his temple eventually is built. But it has to do with God ascending to become king of his people and, and of the world. You led captives in your train. This isn't a choo-choo train. This isn't a wedding jest train. This is a long a group of people that have been captured in war. Hands are tied. They're probably uh, tied in a long string of people, a long row, and they're walking along behind the victors of the war. Now, this is a figure or an image. Okay? This isn't necessarily a literal train of captives, but it's an image that what God did as he conquered the promised land for his people was he was, he was conquering somebody. And hold on to the, who the somebody is. He's conquering somebody. In his train, he has captives, and he's receiving gifts from people, receiving tribute, in other words. He's won the war, and he's receiving tribute. And even from the rebellious, he's received gifts and tribute so that God could dwell in this holy place. Now, that's what's going on in this psalm, and it is poetically telling the story of the Israelites coming into the promised land and conquering it and receiving vineyards that they hadn't planted and fields that they hadn't planted and so on. Now, here is just a great shift in the story, a great twist in that story. This verse is quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. So I want you to pause the video and I want you to read Ephesians 4, verse 8. And I want you to read this verse again and compare them and see what looks the same and what looks different. Take some notes on your paper. What has changed between this verse and Ephesians 4, 8? What do you think is going on in Ephesians 4, verse 8? And then unpause the video and come on back. Okay, so I hope that you enjoyed looking at Ephesians 4, 8 along with this verse. Let me talk for just a second about what's going on. Paul knows very well this verse is about God receiving gifts from people. Did you notice the change in Ephesians 4.8? There, Paul says, when, when God ascended on high with captives in his train, he gave gifts to people. So God gives gifts to people. Now, what is Paul doing? Does Paul, is Paul misquoting the psalm? Does Paul not understand the psalm? Does Paul not understand the history going on in the psalm? No, it's none of those. Paul knows exactly what's going on, and he's quoting it a little bit wrongly on purpose to make a point, to make a point that God doesn't take gifts uh, from people or receive gifts from people just for the sake of having stuff. Whatever God was doing whenever he captured somebody and put them in his train, he was doing it to release gifts to the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, hopefully you picked up on what was going on, God is releasing spiritual gifts to his church. He's called some to be apostles and prophets and teachers and all of these different things so that the church could be built up and strengthened and that the world could be blessed through the people of God. So Paul purposefully takes a, a different take or a twist off of this verse to say the God who collects captives, he collects people, actually releases gifts to everyone. Now let's talk about this captives part real quick. In the New Testament, there are two kinds of captives that God takes. 
Paul to the Colossians says that we, the church, Christians, are the captives of God. We're in his victory procession. Well, what does that mean? We've become his servants and his subjects. But look at how good he treats his servants and his subjects. We aren't like slaves of war. We've been called sons and daughters of God. To be God's captives as people means to be extremely blessed and cared for. We've been placed in a family. We've been given a father. Uh, we aren't lonely anymore. He's taken care of us, poor though we may have been. That's what it means to be a captive of God. He does this for our good. It actually isn't slavery, it's the ultimate freedom. There's one other kind of captive that God takes in the New Testament. In both Ephesians chapter 1 and in the book of Colossians, God takes captive spiritual forces of darkness that are trying to oppress people. So, he gives them names uh, later in other places in the New Testament scriptures like death and Hades and sin. But these spiritual powers that are behind things like uh, greed, lusts, uh, even just the brokenness of this world, that there's famines, floods, and fires in it. The powers of darkness that are not even agencies, they're like impersonal forces. God is slowly taking them captive so that he can keep people from being oppressed. He has to judge sin and judge death. Now, don't, don't hear me say judge sinners, because if sinners are open and coming to God, they receive new life in Jesus, not judgment. But God has to judge and has to have judgment on sin and death and oppression so that he can give gifts to everyone, so that he can set everyone free. This is the whole purpose of Jesus Christ coming to die on the cross and be raised to new life is so that God could set us free. So what can you and I do in the story? How does Psalm 68 help us think about the virus and the needs people have? Couple simple thoughts and then we'll go home. Uh, or actually, <laughs> you're already at home. So then you can turn this video off. Uh, first one is this. There may be needs that people have that you alone know about that you can help with. As, as a person of God, if there's something that you can do, do it. You might keep it private. We may never know, but God knows. And God is actually acting through you. If you know of a need that's within your capacity to meet, God would love to meet that need through you. What a blessing you can be. Maybe take a moment and write down or think about if there's anyone you know of that you can help out in a way that would not be an embarrassment to them, that would not cause them to feel little, but would just be a generous act of kindness. Here's a second way. The church as a group, as a community, loves to help, but we don't always know what the needs are. We have set up a special email address, needs at bentonvillechurch.com, the one you heard John talk about today needs at bentonvillechurch.com so that you or someone that you know can privately, securely send in a need and it will be only seen by one, one minister and one administrator who will keep it secure and private and will help dispense uh, some of what we have to help with that need. We would love to be able to do that. A third way is this. We've got a small pantry that is on the north side of our activity center. It's a little community pantry. And it says right on it, take what you need, leave what you can. Anyone, anyone at all is welcome to come, get a little bit of food, a little bit of cleaning supplies out of there, 
take something if you need it, leave something if you can. These are just a few small examples. I know they don't take care of all the needs in the world, but they're a start. There's some small ways that we help, that we give back. And there's one more way. Ask questions and listen to the people in your home, the people in your small groups, the people that you work with, the people that you're on Zoom with this week. Ask and listen. Whether people have what they need at home, how, how has their sleep been? Uh, you might ask them how they've been sleeping and they say not well because, and they may share like, you know, food's been hard, we're out of a job, the income's down, we can't get the medicine. All of a sudden you just might have heard two or three needs that you may be able to do something about. Uh, how are you doing right now during this time? Simple question, how are you doing right now? Oh, you know, we're struggling to pay the bills or emotionally it's been difficult. All of a sudden you may hear of many needs and pay attention, especially to these ones of livelihood that we might be able to do something concretely about together. Now together, let's step in with this God who meets needs. Let's help him uh, help the world. He is a good God. He's worthy of praise. I'll finish with these verses from the psalm. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. You are awesome, God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Amen.